I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, my friends. Instead of folks. Yep. Folks is kind of a Oklahoma way to say it, right? Yeah, it works, though. Did they say that in the in the Northeast? They folks? do. They do occasionally. It can be kind of an endearing term, so yeah. it works. Yeah. Welcome to the broadcast, folks. Good to have you. Sam? Welcome to the broadcast, y'all. Y'all? <laughs> there folk? we go. What is a folk? Where'd they come from? Uh, I don't know. Um... Good to have you this uh, morning, evening, afternoon, whenever you're listening to this. It is uh, a uh, great time here at the Credo House. Yeah. What you drinking? I am drinking a Nicene Mocha. What's a Nicene Mocha? Nicene Mocha is a, a great blend of, of chocolate. So we start with a chocolate base, and then we do a triple shot espresso pull into it. And then we froth milk up to uh, no more than 158 degrees. No, we steam milk. We don't froth it. Right? Uh, no, we do, we do froth it. So steaming milk is just heating milk with steam. Yeah. Uh, what we do is we do that, but frothing it is incorporating air into that and turning the milk into a microfoam. Oh, uh, well, wait a minute. Microfoam. I thought froth was what would the term we use for cappuccino. No, well... Not I, latte. We use steamed milk for latte, cap, froth for cappuccino. Uh a cappuccino doesn't have as much of the it's not as much as the microfoam it, it's a little thicker foam that's on top yeah yeah oh, well. folks this is, i'm just sitting here in amazement the credo <laughs> house the only place where they not only serve you coffee they exegete it yeah, we right. do the there yeah. you go <laughs> for me just give me folders out of a mr coffee machine oh come I mean, on that hurts <laughs> <laughs> all right well good and, and sam diet coke diet, diet coke, coke. Yes. from the credo house though yes. That's right. It has a unique flavor. <laughs> We're going to be continuing our series on difficult passages. We we could do this indefinitely because there's just lots of them. I, I when we were uh, shooting back and forth emails, Sam, you said what difficult passages are we covering this week, and I started to write an email back to you saying, I don't know of any more. You know, no more are difficult for me. And then by the time I wrote this long email that was both funny and serious about you guys coming up with some difficult passages, then I already had two, and so I erase the whole email and just put the two passages Mm -hmm. you sent back your passage so we've got two difficult passages that we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks we're not sure if it's going to follow past this probably will maybe a couple more times but um i want to talk a little bit about you know what you guys are doing what you guys are reading maybe our listeners uh would uh like to know but what 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 books are you guys reading right now um, I have almost finished Russ, Russ Douthat's book, Bad Religion. Very Bad good. Religion. Yeah. New highly, book? Highly recommended. Um, yeah, I think he's a religion editorial writer for the New York Times. Hmm. And uh, it's about uh, how we – it's subtitled is How We Became a Nation of Heretics. Hmm. And it's fascinating. He, he uh, traces the kind of the corruption of our religious and theological – Life over the last 100 years and up to the present day, and talks about um, the the uh, various deviations from uh, orthodoxy in American society and how they've developed. It's actually very very helpful. He's he's a Roman Catholic, hmm. uh, but writes from a strongly evangelical point of view. It's uh, it's very interesting. So I'm reading that, reading some books on Jonathan Edwards. So. Yeah, I always reading books on Jonathan. Absolutely. Edwards. <laughs> 
Uh, uh, I'm, I'm a multiple book reader at a time person. And so um, I've for quite some time I've been reading through uh, Calvin's Institutes and I'm almost done with volume one. Uh, just fantastic. Fabulous. I, uh, he's become what stands out most, you know, from somebody who has heard lots about Calvin, never really picked up Calvin before and read them for themselves. Yeah. You come in here and you say, gosh, you know, Calvin is he is so devotional. It would be what I would say. I mean, he, you're, re, yeah, your, your mind is being stirred so much, but your heart is too. I mean, he's a guy that that I want to be able to, I want to spend more time with because I'm, I'm loving my Lord more through reading his stuff, and uh, so that's, uh, I'm really enjoying that. I'm reading a book called called Platform by a guy named Michael Hyatt, and it's just an excellent book about basically how to, uh, that in this day and age, you can't just uh, write a book; you need to create a platform on which that book stands. And so just a way of connecting socially through Twitter, Facebook, being wise with stuff. It's been helpful for the Credo House. And then I am a biography nut. Uh, if if I if I see a biography on the table, that's the thing I'm picking up first. And so I've been on a tirade of biographies, and right now I'm on a, a Thomas Edison biography, mm-hmm. and uh, just fascinating by how much of a failure he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we know him for for his success, but uh, most people of his day knew him for all of his failures. And so uh, it's just interesting. It's encouraging for me when I feel like a failure to read other people who are failures. So. Yeah, I just good. finished a good biography. For I think it's the second time I've read it. Um, Alistair McGrath's biography of J.I. Packer. Oh, really? Fascinating. Okay. And if, if not only does it give you an insight into Packer, but it basically traces the history of evangelicalism in the 20th century, wow. which is fascinating because he does it within the context of, of uh, theological developments, and primarily in the U.K., but it's great. There's my it. next biography. Um, I'm also reading a book uh, by a Roman Catholic, Bible Made Impossible, uh, Christian Smith. It is, uh, it, it, it's a decent book, you know. Uh, it's it's hard for me to read whenever I know that it is a, a criticism of uh, the the effects of sola scriptura. Mm. And if it was written from a Protestant, it would be much much better. Mm. But since this guy Christian Smith, he has recently converted to Roman Catholicism, um, from what I understand, since his book beforehand. Be sure you read Robert Gundry's review of it. Yeah. Robert Gundry wrote an extensive review in uh, Books and Culture, and uh, it's mm. very insightful. Mm. Well, it is one that has stirred a lot of people up about uh, the difficulty difficulties uh, that come with uh, personal Bible interpretation and such. But, you know, it's a lot of caricatures and that kind of stuff, a lot of quotes that I can get about how people misunderstand it, and, yes, people misuse it. And But I, I wish he would have been a little bit more honest, so I don't necessarily recommend it for Wow, this is really insightful type stuff. Um, also, uh, I, somewhat of a modern classic on being a theologian of the cross. Man, mm. good stuff. Uh, Lutheran, uh, basically a a uh, exposition of Martin Luther and his the- theology of the cross. But the whole thing is based upon you know, are you a, th- a theologian of the cross? Um, are you a theologian of suffering? Are you a theologian of glory? And the whole idea here is, what do you expect in life? Do you expect glory or do you expect the cross? Mm. And, it, and it's just poetic the way that it's written. It is, it is energizing. It's, hey, if you're going through hard times and suffering, that's the cross. That's our life. I mean, it's, it, it is get ready for it and be more of a theologian of the cross. And the idea here is that we are in a battle, you know, and I like it. Good stuff. Yeah, good. good. 
All right, well, we're going to talk about problem passage. We've got uh, 1 Peter uh, 3, chapter 3, verses what? 18 through 22. 18 through 22. So let's give everybody time to get their Bible out. Okay. I've got my Bible out. <laughs> I'm talking about everybody in oh, the okay. audience. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Tim, read it for us. All right. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Now, Sam, you brought up earlier that we needed to cover a different passage along with this. The basic thing, if you didn't get it so far, has to do with this. He went and made proclamation of the spirits now in prison, which many people would interpret as. Well, many people think that this is a reference to something that happened between the time of Christ's crucifixion and the time of his resurrection, and that where he went was Hades, and that the spirits in prison are human beings who have died without faith in Jesus, and that his purpose for preaching or proclaiming to them was to give them a second chance after their death to respond in faith. Uh, that is how some have interpreted it, um, but I think that we're going to find that that is not, in fact, what Peter is saying. Similar passage. Yeah, Ephesians 4 uh, Paul writes, in beginning in verse 9, in saying he ascended, referring to Jesus, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower part, or into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so the, I, the people say, well, isn't this a reference to the descent of Christ into hell or the descent of Christ into Hades and the... Uh, Many Christians, I think if you ask most average evangelical, they would say, oh, yeah, doesn't this refer to what happened between the time of the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Um, got Apostles' Creed right here. Uh, is it the Apostles' Creed? Or is it the Nicene Creed? I think it's the... I think it's the Apostles. Yeah. This Apostles' Creed that I'm looking at is... Oh, no, here it is, here it is. Okay, uh, Apostles' Creed. This is, you know, kind of the early Christian tradition that got... I think we need to talk about this, right? I mean, it's it's the idea that a lot of people bring up that we, we have talked about the Apostles' Creed quite a bit, but in one part of it, it says he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell. That's part of the, I mean, creed. The, uh, there, there's not many things in the creeds, the earliest creeds, that I that I pause and I say, hey, you know, I don't agree with that. Uh, mm-hmm. the, there's something in establishment. Me, me and Tim have taught recently on the regular fide, this idea that there's this protection of, of interpretive truth that follows in the early centuries that is the essentials of the faith. 
what are the essentials of the faith in the early church? Well, it's the Apostles' Creed. But one of the essentials it says is that we believe that Jesus Christ descended into hell. What in the world does that mean? Well, and they're obviously picking it up from this verse and from Ephesians 4. I think I, I can't think of another place where they're really getting this uh, idea. And then they're kind of creating this cloud around Scripture or this teaching around Scripture to say, think this way as you're reading the Bible. Furthermore, there are actually a number of variations on the, on the creed, on that particular creed, and in later editions of it, that phrase is omitted. Mm. Uh, this is actually uh, discussed in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Mm. And then, of course, some say that descending into hell there is simply a way of saying that he suffered the pains of hell on the cross for us, but not uh, is not a reference to some sort of literal going, spatial movement from you know, from mm-hmm. where we are into hell itself. Uh, so there are various ways in which people have addressed it. Later additions, though, but earliest church seems to have some type of belief that Christ descended into hell, just tagged on maybe, or it doesn't seem to be something they talk about a lot or interpret a lot. But let's let's try to figure out what the how, how we can interpret this. Uh, let's stick f- first with First Peter chapter 3, because I think that that is the the one that stands out the most, and maybe then we can apply whatever we uh, whatever we come to uh, to the Ephesians passage. But he sa- says he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now, I mean, what is the connection, Noah? What is the connection with these spirits? And what is the connection? What is this prison? Well, a view that is uh, becoming increasingly popular, not to say that it's a modern one. I think it's been around for quite a while. It's a view that uh, I know that Wayne Grudem advocates in his commentary on First Peter, is that this is a reference to G- the pre-incarnate Christ through the Holy Spirit preaching by means of Noah to those who were disobedient prior to the Great Flood. So the idea is that um, here are uh, here are these individuals during the time of Noah who are defiant. In fact, these are the ones who were so wicked and evil that it provoked the flood. This was God's judgment, and that Christ, pre-incarnate, uh, through Noah, by means of the Spirit, was making the gospel known to them, and that these uh, individuals. Um, are now in prison. In other words, they are now in Hades or they are now in hell. And that this has nothing to do with something that Christ did between his death and resurrection. Rather, it has to do with his, in a sense, his appeal to them to repent that happened through Noah uh, by means of the power of the Spirit. That's the view that a number of individuals have taken. I, I find that odd. Um, I find it, there's several reasons why I have problems with it, one of which is that the word spirit, the, the word spirits in verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits, plural, in prison. Uh, the interesting thing about this is there, there is no use of the plural spirits without a qualifying phrase anywhere in the Bible where it refers to human beings. The only place, I think, where it, where it is used to refer to human beings in the plural is Hebrews 12, 23, where it talks about the spirits of the righteous made perfect. But notice there's a qualifying phrase, 
to tell us that they're humans, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. But any time the word spirit is used without a qualifying phrase in the plural, it always, without exception, refers either to angels or demons. Hmm. So I have a little bit of a check about this view right there. And then also this word prison is nowhere used in the Bible to refer to where human beings go upon death. It is, however, the same word that we find in Revelation 20, verse 7, where it talks about where Satan is imprisoned uh, in the abyss. So I have a couple of hesitations about about that particular interpretation. And I think there's a better way of accounting for what's in the text, but that is a very popular view. Well, and I think so, too. When I read the story of Noah, I don't see him proclaiming very much, too. I don't see him doing a lot of preaching and, and trying to get people to turn. I see him building a boat, building an ark. And uh, so I think this idea that somehow Christ through Noah is is in some way really trying to get people to repent, get people to turn. Um, it seems like judgment is already made, at least from my perspective, in that uh, he's just carrying out the, his marching orders. Well, and it's interesting, too. I mean, Christ going in the Spirit, and, and I, I held that view, and I'm, I'm, I'm really you, learning You, you it hold right to now. it now? Well, I don't know now. But um, <laughs> but, but the, the idea that Sam, that let's Sam get him. up, Come on. if it's Jesus, <laughs> Jesus going and preaching, you know, that the... the just the odd failure that occurred, you know. I mean, yeah. here's here's through Noah Jesus preaching to these people who are in prison, and his preaching was ineffective, you know, well, in the spirit. And and why Peter brings this up, you know, in that context would be very odd. Yeah, I mean, for me, it just makes no sense why he would decide to tell such an uh, a. a such a foreign concept in just a verse or two, uh, then just kind of keep going on. I mean, I think the context in here doesn't seem to me in any, any way, shape, or form uh, be he's not cluing us in at all. Hey, I'm going to tell you about something that happened a long time ago. Instead, I think he's just using Noah uh, just as a type here uh, to, to continue a story that he's telling in a different direction. And then there, I mentioned the, another view, which probably... Um is the most it, it, kind of two variations on on this other view, and this is the idea that between the time of his death and resurrection, the disembodied Christ, the the spirit of Jesus, went into Hades, and he proclaimed or preached, depending on how you understand that word, to those who were there. Now the question is, uh, what was what was he proclaiming, and what was the purpose? Some would say that he was preaching to them to give them a second chance for salvation. Now, the really odd thing about this is if, if you start, you kind of extrapolate that out. Okay, so I'm now being told that Jesus uh, gave a second chance for salvation to those who were confined in Hades up to the point of his time of his death and resurrection. Well, what about all the people that have died since then? Does Jesus go to proclaim to them the gospel? Why this unique group? Are they getting special privileges that all the rest of the dead throughout history don't have? That seems really odd. Well, and I think some people could say, no, I think he's giving all people who have ever died a second chance. Maybe maybe this is what it's referring to. Well, but it doesn't say that. It's a, remember, their argument yeah. is that this is happening at a particular point in time between mm-hmm. the death and resurrection of Jesus, yeah. not throughout the whole course of human history. Yeah. And then, but then others would say, no, he's he's not there to give them a second chance to believe, um, but rather he is there simply to proclaim his victory 
uh, in his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, so it's a, it's a sense of not a flaunting or uh, in, in that sense of the word, but something of a vindication over those who had denied him and had resisted him. Uh, I, find, I find that view problematic. Um, I think there's a much more forthright way of understanding this passage. Let me, But also, I mean, problematic, it's, it's those who were disobedient when the patience of God was waiting in the days of Noah. The connection of the days of Noah, to me, you know, pulls this out as, a, as a, some type of unique thing that has to be connected with Noah, either, number one, through what we just said, the Spirit of Christ going in through Noah in the days, and like I yeah. said, not having any... Effect. Right. So he's, it, there's a specific, we don't know whether they're humans right now or demonic beings, yeah. but it's specifically tied to something they did during the days of Noah. And this, by the way, I think is going to tie us back in to a problem passage we dealt with earlier, namely mm-hmm. Genesis 6. Mm-hmm. So let me, walk, let me walk you through what I think it says, and you all respond to this. Because okay. I have no clue anymore. All right. We have to go back into verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, now the antecedent of which there is spirit, spirit. in verse 18. So we first have to determine what is the end of verse 18 talking about when it says he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. Well, first of all, he's not talking about the two natures of Christ. Some people think flesh is a reference to his human nature, spirit a reference to his divine nature. There's, there's no indication that that's the case. The words aren't ever used that way in the New Testament of Jesus. I think that this is a reference to the death and resurrection. I think he's saying he was put to death in the flesh, physically, bodily, he was crucified. But he was raised in the spirit that could be a reference to the Holy Spirit, but I, th- I King think... King James has it as the Holy Spirit. It has it capitalized. ESV doesn't, it? doesn't. New American Bible doesn't. New American Standard. Uh, Net Bible doesn't. No, no one else but the KJV seems to interpret it as Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. And I think that's they're right in, in rendering No, no. It with, new Living Translation does. It has a capital S. Yeah. I think it's a reference. Let me put it this way. I think it's saying... As to the flesh, as to this earthly physical realm, Jesus was put to death. But he was raised in the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm, um, the supernatural realm. So it's a reference to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he says in verse 19, in which spirit, that is in this realm of the spirit, the supernatural resurrection life into which Jesus was raised, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So there's, I think what it's saying is that it's not something that happened between his death and resurrection, but it's something that happened after his resurrection. In his resurrection life, in the eternal spiritual realm, he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now let me pause there and say one other thing. I mentioned before, by the way, that whenever spirit is used in the plural without a qualifier. It refers to either angels or demons. Now notice he says in verse 19, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Past tense, not ongoing things. Right. Something that happened. But but a lot of people say that, that word went refers to a descent into Hades. But the problem is that's not what the Greek verb means. It simply means to go. And in fact, down in verse 22, 
It says, referring to Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. The Greek verb there translated gone is the exact verb that we find in verse 19. Same verb. And in verse 22, it's referring to what? His ascent after his resurrection to the right hand of God. So there's nothing in the word went that suggests a descent. In oh, fact, we get that only from prison, and we interpret prison as hell. Right. Okay. Because in verse 22, the same verb is used to refer to his going to the right hand of the Father, which is a reference to his ascension. So here's what I think is happening. I think the spirits in prison here is a reference to those um, sons of God that we talked about in Genesis 6, those fallen angelic beings, those demons who entered into illicit relationship with women prior to the flood, and they were punished for that and consigned to, uh, um, as Jude says, dark places awaiting the time of judgment. So I think what is being said here is that following his resurrection in the spirit, in the realm of the spirit, Jesus went to the prison where these demonic beings were being held captive as punishment for their sin during the time of Noah, just preceding the great flood. And Jesus proclaimed his victory over them. He made known to them in a very clear and vivid way, they are defeated. They, are, uh, they have been conquered. And that this, in essence, is what he did at the time, not of a descent into hell, but at the time of his ascent or his ascension into heaven. So again, the idea is he was put to death with regard to the physical fleshly realm, this earthly existence. He was made alive, namely resurrected, into the realm of the spirit, the heavenly, the supernatural dimension. And in that resurrected state, at the time of his ascension, as he was going to the right hand of the Father, he proclaimed to those fallen demonic beings his victory over them. And I think it's a way of saying to the. and again, people might say, well, why in the world would Peter talk about this in this letter? Well, let's remember what First Peter's about. It's about persecution, primarily. It's about the sufferings of the people of God who are enduring not only uh, the persecution of non-believers in a secular society, but also uh, are under threat from demonic powers and it's, it's a way of reminding his readers, his audience, look, you don't have to fear the demonic spirits. Let me just give you an example. In his resurrection, at the time of his ascension, he made known his victory over the demonic realm by going to that place where these particular demonic beings had been incarcerated because of their sin back in the time of the flood. And Jesus was vindicated in their presence and proclaimed to them that he has conquered, that he has won out over sin and death. He has been raised from the grave. This is the Christ in whom you believe. This is the Christ with whom you are identified. So it's almost like he looks at a time period of where demons could have thought that they destroyed mankind. Sure. People made in the image of God that God loves. And demons could say, we have won. And they won all but eight people. And so that was a time period. And then the, the Savior of mankind, at a time when the demons could have thought that they had conquered the Savior of mankind, then he rises as well. So two times where it looks like mankind has finished, 
and the savior of mankind is finished. And demons are starting to celebrate probably a bit too early uh, then they realize that they are conquered both times. Yeah. And they're conquered by the resurrection of Christ. You know, If you just look at the cross, you think, oh, my gosh, Satan's won. Yeah. Jesus has been killed. It's, yeah. The hope is, is, that, is over. Mankind has no hope. Right. And the point of Peter is, no, you don't understand. Yes, he was crucified in the flesh, but he's been raised in the spirit realm. He has conquered death. He's alive and in his resurrected spiritual existence now, not that it's, that he doesn't have a body, he does, but it's a spiritual body. Mm-hmm. Like Paul talked about, yeah, the spiritual a glorified body. body. He has now mm-hmm. proclaimed his victory and made known that he has conquered the demonic realm. Well, and, listen to this about those angels that are kept in this uh, domain. If this, this is that same group, and it relates to the Jude, it's uh, the Jude passage, Jude chapter, Jude verse six. It says. The angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness. Now, that's an interesting phrase that's right there the, to I do think the that's under a, darkness. I think that's a reference to the spirits in prison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they're referring to the same and, thing. And the under darkness has to do with just kind of this, they're outside of things. They don't know what's going on. you know. And as you said... The, the idea that maybe they think that they have some type of victory they don't they don't know that they have uh, that righteousness has been vindicated through Jesus and this is bringing to light at least that they didn't win anything and there's a confirmation by the way of this view verse 22 I think verse 22 is restating in slightly different terms the very thing that verse 19 has just said notice what he says of Jesus. He's just referred to the resurrection at the end of verse 21. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, the risen Christ, has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And again, angels, authorities, and powers is standard New Testament language for fallen demonic beings. And notice here, they are subjected to him. So I think verse 22 is synonymous in meaning with verse 19. I think it's saying the risen Christ has gone to um, these demonic spirits, these fallen angelic principalities and powers, has proclaimed his victory over them, has subjected them under his feet, as is manifest in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. These demons who were also disobedient, uh, if they're demons here... um, when the patience of God kept waiting the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, which in which, that is, a few eight people were brought safely through the water, and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Now, that's the thing that uh, throws a monkey wrench to some degree in all of this. I'm trying to figure out exactly what this is, how this is brought in, and it makes sense, Sam, what you're talking about, especially with verse 22 corresponding to verse 18. But what is this now about this baptism and how does that fit into the context of his argument? Is it a parenthetical thought that he brings up whenever he says, oh, and corresponding to that? Because I'm fine with that. That makes sense. There's a lot of parenthetical thoughts. But but how does the end corresponding to that baptism now saves you, not the removal of flesh, but an appeal to God for a good, good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus? Because um, at first, I would think that that is the main point of this passage because we're talking about keeping a good conscience, verse 16, so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better if you should, if it, it's God's will that you should suffer for doing what is right than what is wrong. And then pulling back in this baptism, this appeal 
to God for a good conscience. We're talking about keeping a good conscience here. And through the power of the resurrection, we do keep this good conscience. And so it's hard for me to find the contextual markers for for all of this. Uh, if I could find some way to to throw in, um, to figure out this corresponding to that baptism now saves you, I might bite hook, line, and sinker. Here's the way I'm viewing it is that if you are, I mean, it, 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 a way to view this potentially is that uh, demons are, are seeking to destroy mankind, and those people who are in the ark are saved through the water, through floating on the water. So they're in the ark, they're on the water. They're not treading water uh, you know, on the surface until it goes down, but they're in the ark through the water, and that saves them through by uh, you know these powers, demons seeking to destroy them, and things like that. And then I think the parallel is for those who are in Christ. So if you are in the ark, you're saved on your on baptism the with Christ now saves you. Yeah. So sense. so if you are just like how they were in the ark and were saved and were saved from these authorities and principalities, uh, so if you are in Christ. And then you are saved from that destruction as well. And uh, and in the sense of, of baptism being seen as just a part of that. So you have to be, just as they had to be in the ark, you have to be in Christ. Uh, but then the water baptism is kind of your time of floating on the water uh, until it recedes. And so I think he draws this, a beautiful imagery of being in the ark or being in Christ. And I think what what stirs him to move in this direction is I think Peter is trying to draw a parallel between the people of his day to whom he's writing and the people of Noah's day. And the parallels are several, one of which is the people in Peter's day were a minority in comparison with the vast numbers of unbelievers not only were they a minority, but they're being persecuted. Peter talks all the way through his first letter about them being slandered and reviled. Well, Noah and the eight were slandered and reviled. And as you just said, Tim, in, in, uh, in a sense, it was through the waters that they were delivered. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, also, it is through the waters of baptism that we are delivered. But then, very important qualification, he says, it's almost as if Peter stops and says, no, wait a minute, I don't want you to misunderstand what baptism does. Mm -hmm. The waters of baptism don't do anything except remove dirt from your body. There's no magical, spiritual, Mm -hmm. redemptive, saving um, power in the physical element of water. All it can do is wash dirt from your body. In what sense then, Peter, do you mean that baptism now saves us? And he says, in this sense... To the extent that it is an expression of your appeal to God for a good conscience. So when you get baptized, you are crying out to God for cleansing. You're crying out to God for salvation. Uh, You're appealing to him uh, to work within you a clean, good conscience in his sight. And if baptism is the outward expression of that inward appeal Mm -hmm. in faith, then in that sense it can be said to save you, but not in the sense that the actual physical operation of water on the body has any spiritual value. Okay, so then the connection here would be that we have we have people suffering. We have Peter encouraging, Peter appealing to the resurrection of Christ and the victory of Christ, because I can see that all through this, and then Christ dying once for all for our sins, the just to the unjust, that we might bring us to God. 
and then being made alive in the spirit. Now, he defeated the 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 angels or, or made proclamation to them uh, in the same way that you should understand that there's a proclamation of victory in your own life. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And the baptism that he's talking about here uh, is the resurrection of Jesus, in the sense the identification with the resurrection of Jesus, because he says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection right. of Jesus. Because in baptism, you're identified not just with his death and his burial, but with his resurrection. Who is at the right hand of God. So that does connect it all. That does kind of show there is this victory in the resurrection of Jesus and, and pulling to this. Um, the the victory that, uh, that, that comes in our own lives over all of our suffering and all the, the problems and the difficulties. We're running out of time. Can I quickly re- refer to Ephesians 4? Sure. Because we don't have much time left, but I know people are wondering, what does it mean in Ephesians 4, 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Um, some have said that the uh, lower regions of the earth is a, a metaphorical reference to the womb because it's actually used in the Old Testament. You know, when Psalm 139 says, I was formed in the, in, the, in, the, in the depths of the earth, and that is there clearly a reference to the womb of his mother. So some have said, is, could this be a reference to the virgin conception of Jesus? I don't think so. Um, some have actually argued that this descent here is a reference to the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, in other words, Christ has come to us through the Spirit at Pentecost. I think, however, this is simply a reference to the incarnation. Um, and I think the ESV renders this correctly. It says, He had also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. Now, a lot of the translations render this into the lower regions of the earth. So here's the earth, and then there are lower regions of the earth, namely mm-hmm. down underneath Hades, hell. Mm-hmm. But grammatically, I think what he's saying is, he descended into the lower regions, which is or which are the earth. Um, so it's a it's a genitive of apposition, and most grammarians say that's entirely legitimate. The ESV renders it that way. So it's a reference. He descended into the lower regions, namely to the earth. So it's a reference to the incarnation of Christ. It's simply and some saying, people even say it's just the lower regions. That's his burial. Uh, yeah, some say it's the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Yeah. But 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 the hardest thing to put into this would be hell, right? I mean, yeah, that that'd be the most unnatural reading of that. I think it would. I think this is this is not a reference. Once again, if we can kind of speak in summary here, it's not a reference to something that happened to Jesus between his death and resurrection in that three day span. This in Ephesians four is actually describing the incarnation of Jesus. It is the coming to Jesus to the earth in human flesh and human form for our salvation. I know we're going long here, but I, I have a question real quick. Into, um, is uh, We all agree he didn't go to hell, right? I'm pretty sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I do not think that he did. Except, is hell, is no, hell no, even open for business no, yet? No, wait a second. Let's clarify that. We, I, I, I do believe he went to the prison where these demonic spirits are incarcerated awaiting the final judgment. Yeah. Now, if that prison is called hell or Hades, yes, I would say he went there. 
But he didn't go there to give anybody a second chance for salvation. And he didn't go there to because Satan required it, because that was no. some of the kind of early church yeah. interpretations as well, that Satan was down there and Satan took him into hell, and then somehow the 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 sinlessness uh, caused him to, as St. Augustine put it, it was the hook that, that hooked Satan, and Satan was tricked because he didn't belong in hell, right. so God took him out. And it didn't happen between his death and resurrection. He did go to the prison where the spirits are incarcerated. I believe at the time of his ascension to the right hand of the Father in his resurrected state to proclaim and manifest and be vindicated in his victory over them. Is hell even open for business? Uh, Tim and I are looking at each other. What does he mean (laughs) by that? I mean, it's just a waiting place now for judgment, right? I mean, we think of hell as one compartment where satan's at and all these demons satan's not there demons aren't there there's a there's a place that people wait judgment oh we'll talk about it some other time (laughs) that's another problem passage yeah (laughs) all right guys well thanks for joining us uh we'll continue next week what are we talking about next week Paul's thorn in the flesh thorn in the flesh all right join us you've been listening to theology unplugged visit our itunes page by searching theology unplugged at the itunes store all episodes are available as free downloads Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.